Good afternoon and welcome back. Um, we're settling in after lunch and a great deal of chat. Uh, so this afternoon's, this first part of this afternoon before the next break is, uh, is kind of picking up on this theme about, about fixed and fluid and the different types of intelligence that, that um, allow us to navigate through that. So the second part of this session will be uh, moderated by Dervil MacDonald, it'll be Susan Carl and Dr. Ema O'Toole. Um, but for the first part, um, talking about modernist Ireland and a world system in crisis, um, I'd like to welcome to the stage uh, Pro Professor Joseph Cleary, who works in the area of English, uh, English and Irish post-colonial world literature. Um, and at the moment, he's, he's several different uh, publications at the moment. He's working on two that are probably of particular interest to today. Uh, one is about modernism, empire and world literature, and the other one uh, is entitled Strange Continents, Irish Expatriate Novel Between the American and the Chinese Centuries. Can you please give a warm welcome to Professor Joseph Cleary. Uh, thanks for that introduction, and uh, my thanks to Fiek and to Jan and to everybody else involved in this um, symposium, which um, I have to say this morning was absolutely electrifying and uh, in some ways humbling to talk after some of the speakers that we've already had. Uh, my talk is a kind of uh, around the world, not in 80 days, but in 15 minutes. But um, what I really want to talk about is change, not just in the modernist period, period that I signaled in my title, but then to bring that into the uh, contemporary moment as well. Uh, just a hundred years ago, W.B. Yeats, formerly of this parish, wrote an essay titled uh, Certain Noble Plays of Japan. If you look at that essay, you will see that the signature at the bottom of it is April 1916, placing it, of course, in the month of the Easter Rising that we're going to commemorate very shortly. And in that essay, Yeats denounced his intention to create a new kind of drama that would turn its back on the realist theater, on the modern bourgeois theater, that would dispense with things like stage furniture, dispense with the whole concern with character and psychology, and, Yeats said, create a different kind of theater that would be ritualistic, stylized, concentrated, and above all, symbolic. And that his model for this new drama was the no theater of, of Japan. And that this theater furthermore would be targeted not at a public audience like the one here, but at a small select artistic coterie. Now, it was a very strange essay appearing in the month of April uh, 1916 to come from the hand of one of the founders of the Abbey Theater. It seemed to in it, Yeats seemed to renounce his earlier commitment to a national theatre and to now want to turn his hand to a quite different kind of aristocratic but also modernist theatre. It's true that this new turn that Yeats announced in the essay did produce a couple of remarkable plays at the Hawk's Well and the Only Jealousy of Emer among them, but it might also be considered, I suppose, um, something of one of Irish modernism's several false starts. Because for all of the remarkable history of Irish modernism, I think it had many false starts. Uh, the great period of Irish literature 
running, let us say, from the 1890s with Wilde and Shaw and George Moore, through Yeats and Joyce and Singh and O'Casey, and up to perhaps the last generation of, li of Irish modernists like Elizabeth Bowen, Martin O'Kine and Samuel Beckett, I'm talking about the period of the revival and modernism, they, should, they, they coincided, we should remember, with the most extraordinary changes in the early 20th century world system. Even at the beginning of the century, long before 1914 and World War II, the signs of things to come were ominous. That century began, we should remember, with the great scandal of the Boer War, and also with the Russo-Japanese War of 1904, the first time after centuries in which a modern Asian state uh, defeated one of the great European powers. Later, looking back from after the perspective of the Holocaust and World War II, the great uh, Jewish critic Hannah Arendt would say that the seeds of fascism that returned to haunt Europe in the 1920s and 30s were actually sown in the racism of empire. And in 1904, uh, just at the end of the uh, Russo-Japanese war that I mentioned, and just before he himself, he would die himself at the end of that month, Lafcadio Hearn, the Irish uh, writer who had settled in Japan, saw in the Russo-Japanese war the straws in the wind for a later, greater, terrible 20th century war. Now we all know what happened in World War I, as well as the millions dead and the many millions wounded and maimed all across Europe, three empires collapsed. The Ottoman or Turkish Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Romanov Empire. The former powers which had governed the world for most of the 19th century, which had held together the previous world system, England and France, emerged victorious from World War I, but shattered and above all deeply indebted. And out of the ashes of that war came really two new superpowers, onto the west of Europe, the United States, and to the east, Soviet or Bolshevik Russia. And these would displace uh, Britain and France as the leading world hegemons, and would go on in the later part of the 20th century, largely to divide the planet into their respective zones. But even after that amazing turbulence of World War I, uh, that turbulence was far from finished. Germany and Japan, humiliated by their defeats in World War I, determined not to remain second-order powers in the kind of race for world supremacy of the time, and squeezed in different ways by the Great Depression of the 1920s and 1930s, bid a second time for power, as we know, and were only with the combined strength of the Soviet Union uh, and the United States defeated. After World War II, both Europe and Asia, this time two continents, were smoking ruins. The concentration camps, as we know, full of skeletons and specters. The world dazed by a kind of violence and barbarity on a scale and of an intensity uh, never seen before. It is really hard to imagine, I think, that this was the same world that had given us Proust and Joyce, Picasso and Brack, Schoenberg and Stravinsky, Beckett and Brecht, Larka and Eliot and Yeats and Rilke and so many others, Eisenstein and Chaplin. But it was this world, this world of extraordinary violence, this world which is really uh, could not be looked at 
in any sort of terms except uh, to be appalled was the world which gave birth to this extraordinary efflorescence of modernist culture. Since the 1950s, at the end of that war, we've lived in a world system which has been essentially dominated by the, by the United States. The United States, in the past half century or more, has basically held together the world system that we now live in, in the way that Great Britain and France had done for uh, the preceding century. But for some time now, perhaps it has seemed, and particularly perhaps since 1989, when the US finally saw off its great rival, the Soviet Union, as a competitor collaborator state, it has seemed that the plates of the US-dominated world system are now too beginning to shift and unsettle in all sorts of unpredictable ways. And that perhaps as we move into the 21st century, we are entering a new phase of global turbulence. Some of the signs of this change are obvious. The rise of first Japan and more recently China and India as great new economic superpowers in their own right is an extraordinary change and a very far-reaching one. The inability, as we've been hearing various talks about this morning, although the US still remains a huge presence in the whole, Arabian, in the whole Arabic and Islamic world, stretching all the way from the Middle East to Afghanistan, its ability to control that world in the way that it had been able to do uh, partly uh, um, in competition with, but also, as I said, in collaboration with the Soviet Union, that too seems much more precarious, much less settled than it did uh, a couple of decades ago. And of course, the massive indebtedness of, its, of the US itself after World War I, one of the reasons that the United States emerged as a great superpower was precisely because the European states, Germany, England, and France, were all in their different ways so uh, financially indebted to the United States. But the United States is now itself uh, a hugely indebted state. And also we should mention that the millions and millions of migrants on the move across all of the continents is another sign of a fundamental world disorder. And while Marx said a spectre is haunting Europe, the spectre of capitalism, we might say now that a spectre is haunting the planet, the spectre of global climate change. Now, my purpose in mentioning all of this is not to stand here like some sort of Cassandra heaping alarm upon alarm. But what I do wish to suggest is that for any vision of the Irish arts, moving into the next couple of decades, or for Irish theatre, for Irish writing, for Irish painting, for whatever, uh, should perhaps start from the fundamental premise that we are undergoing not just our own Celtic tiger crisis, or post-Celtic tiger crisis, but we're also living through a period of really terrific change in the wider world system. And it's also worth remembering, I think, that since 1945, and maybe much before 1945, our, it's not just our political universe or our financial universe, but also our cultural universe that has largely been centered on the United States. And this in some ways has increased 
over the course of the last couple of decades. Think of all of the Irish writers, and I'm not saying this in any critical way, obviously. I don't mean this as a value judgment in any way, but just a sign of the times. Think of the number of leading Irish writers who now uh, are largely connected to US institutions or live some or all of the time in the United States. People like Colm Tobin or Ivan Boland, Paul Muldoon, Seamus Heaney when he was there, and before him, Brian Moore, and you could go to a younger generation uh, like Joseph O'Neill and several others. In many ways, our writers at the end of the 20th century flocked towards the United States in the same way they flocked towards London in the era of Wilde and Shaw uh, and others. Or to pick a more contemporary, a very sort of uh, up-to-the-minute example, think of the what's being called, with some exaggeration, I think, the golden year of Irish cinema that's just um, been celebrated so much on the media. Think how US or how Hollywood defined that um, golden year of Irish cinema is. It's essentially because of US awards and success as calibrated by an American film industry. Success in the arts in some ways is now calibrated, as I said, by Hollywood or New York, as perhaps a century earlier it was by London and Paris. But what I want to suggest, and the talks this morning perhaps might bear me out to some degree, is that that world is changing, and changing fast, changing faster perhaps than we know. And in some ways it might seem that the people who have most catching up to do are precisely artists and intellectuals. We like to think that we're in the vanguard of a society that we are the cosmopolitan creatures of our societies, but um, I sometimes wonder. Over the past half century, the Abbey and the Gay Theatres, again, just to pick two very local examples, have given us some absolutely wonderful examples of the great classics of US and Russian theatre. I'm thinking of performances that I've greatly enjoyed myself, of things like, of plays by Eugene O'Neill and Miller and Sam Shepard, and seasons uh, at various times, it seemed like, of Chekhov, whom we've almost made one of our own. But how many performances have we had in our theatres of the great classics of either old or contemporary China, or Japan, or Iran, or Brazil, or Egypt, or of the many other countries beyond the borders of the Anglo-American world? Go down to Hodges Figgis, and you'll be lucky if you can find a copy of the late, great Aidan Higgins's Balcony of Europe, one of the finest novels written, Irish novels written in the late 20th century about post-war Europe. But you will, I must admit, be able to find their novels engaging with European societies by people like John Banville, Hugo Hamilton, Deirdre Madden, and several others. But have a look and see what Irish novels you might be able to find that deal with the Middle East, that deal with Africa, that deal with South America. You'll be lucky if you can find a handful. And in this year of revolutions, we might also say what happened to our traditions of political writing, of political literature in the 20th century. In the 19th century, and in the early 20th century, up to the period of 1916, and maybe a little beyond, Ireland actually produced some fantastic writers of political prose. They're very little celebrated, but people like John Mitchell, or Michael Davitt, or James Connolly were not just great uh, political figures. 
they also wrote some fantastically stylish works about their lives and about the kind of political campaigns that we were in. And the two greatest political dramatists that we have, it seems to me, were both born in the 19th century, George Bernard Shaw and Sean O'Casey. But what happened to that tradition of political writing and political literature? Did it kind of run into the ground with modernism or afterwards? Where are the successors today to the tradition uh, of Shaw and O'Casey? And if filmmaking is the most modern and the most contemporary of our arts, and the one that is rightly being fated in Hollywood, um, where are the filmmakers that are engaging with the world beyond uh, our own shores and beyond the familiar sort of world, the more familiar world of England and America? Certain noble plays of Japan may have announced in April 1916 of all months, one of the most interesting dead ends in Irish modernism. But of course, after the insurrection in 1916, Yeats had to revise his thinking. And it's remarkably interesting to read the poem that he worked on over the summer ahead, Easter 1916, which he worked on and revised between May and September of that year, to see the way in which some of the same themes that he's talking about in um, certain noble plays of Japan get reformulated. Because in certain noble plays of Japan, he is saying that the world of tragedy and the world of comedy belong to different spheres. Comedy is a kind of realistic art. It belongs essentially to the ordinary people. Tragedy is a high art, an elevated form, and it is distinct from comedy the mistake of Europe, even though it's produced wonderful dramatists like Shakespeare, has been to mix the two. And what he admires about Japan, however much he knows or little he knows about no theatre is a question, is that he thinks there the two theatres, the high tragic and the low mimetic, have been kept apart. And if you look at Easter 1916, one of the things he says he had taught he had lived, meeting those civil servants, those young men coming from uh, their offices and places of work. He had taught he had lived in Ireland in a time of low comedy, wherever motley is worn. Motley is the garb of the comedian, of the low actor. But now all of that has been transformed. The stuff of comedy has been transformed into the stuff of high tragedy. A terrible beauty is born. Over the course of the year from April 1916 to September 1916, when he finally released that poem, Yeats had to revise his thinking. Perhaps as we enter the 21st century, we too might do the same. Thank you.